0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, as we read verses 53 to 58. Hear now the word of our God. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Are not his mo- is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. O God, we ask today that we would not be like the people of Nazareth, with hard hearts that resist your Son. Instead, would you grant your Spirit's grace to us that we might have hearts that are eager and ready to receive your truth and to respond in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are. We read this passage as it begins. It says he comes to his hometown. In other words, he's arriving in Nazareth. And we think, we know the pattern by this point. Jesus goes from town to town, and what happens? He is received gladly by people. We think that we're about to read another conquest story. Another story about Jesus going somewhere and being much beloved and being celebrated and people coming to him and finding that the scribes and Pharisees once again don't like him very much, right? We think we know how all of these narratives seem to be going, Uh, they're going to see that the Messiah Messiah is in their presence and they're going to believe because he's Jesus. Of course they're going to believe. And instead, he arrives in Nazareth and it it seems to start off very well at least, it seems to. Uh, We don't know what he taught. We don't know the message that he preached in the Nazareth synagogue, but we do know that they are astonished at what he says. Um, That seems like a good beginning, except everything quickly goes off the rails. Uh, His teaching astonishes them, but it turns out there's something very offensive to them about his person. The problem is not with Jesus' teaching. The problem is not with his miracles. The problem is with him. And so this morning we're going to learn, even in the midst of this rejection, that central to Jesus' mission was not only his message, but his person. Who Jesus is, is not only important, but it is really core to who he was and why he was so often rejected. And so we will see this in two stages. Uh, First, we have the teaching that astonishes. And then second, we have a person that offends. So teaching that astonishes, a person that offends. Those are our two points this morning. Let's go right to verse 54. First, we see teaching that astonishes. Look at verse 54 again. It says, It says, Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So, you know, the people of, of Nazareth, they recognize wisdom in Jesus' words, right? They are, it's not that they're not admirers of the content of what this man preaches. Um, they recognize not only wisdom in his words, but they recognize power in his miracles. Um, we see at the end of verse 58, Matthew tells us that he did not, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The passage seems to be implying he did some miracles there. Uh, which was enough to contribute to their amazement. So, it's interesting to think about what it is that offends the people in Nazareth. In fact, if you go a little bit broader, what it is that people appreciate and don't appreciate appreciate about Jesus, depending on the culture in which we live, right? In our own cultural moment, it seems to me, at least, that the teachings of Jesus are generally appreciated and respected. I say generally appreciated. Um, You write, even in the secular, supposedly irreligious 21st century West, Jesus is is given some kind of grudging respect because of his teachings. Uh, If you go even ask an atheist, ask a fair-minded person, among them at least, and they will usually admit that they do think the world would be a better place if more people listened to Jesus, if more people paid attention to the teaching of Jesus. Right? There, is a, there is a general appreciation of the teachings of Jesus. In fact, as I was working on this, I did a little bit of homework, and I found out that there's a movement out there called the Secular Jesus Follower Movement. The name just rolls off the tongue. The Secular Jesus Follower Movement. Um, these are people who, uh, I read numerous interviews, uh, these are people who find the teachings of Jesus compelling, even though they don't believe that he was who he said he was, and they don't worship him as God. But they say that they appreciate Jesus for his teachings. And as I was looking into this a little more, I read an article, and it was called, Why I Am a Secular Jesus Follower. And it's this fellow named Tom Krattenmacher. He is a self-professed, secular, irreligious person but he gives some examples of how he says he appreciates the teachings of Jesus even though he doesn't believe in the resurrection and he doesn't believe Jesus is God. Um, so let me give you some examples of things that he as a secular Jesus follower appreciates about Jesus, or at least he says he says he appreciates about Jesus. First he says, because of Jesus I have been inspired to hang out with the wrong people. Um, Second, he says, I have become cognizant of the futility of violence. Third, he says, I have been persuaded to worry less and trust more. Now, he he doesn't say who he trusts. (laughs) He doesn't say who he's been persuaded to trust, but he's been persuaded to trust more in some general sense. Um, Fourth, he says, I have come to see how Jesus can save us. Oh, you might think, what, what is that? How, how can Jesus save somebody if he's not fully man and fully God? Well, he says that following Jesus doesn't save us from our sins or from hell, but he says Jesus can save us from trivial self-seeking, from consumerism, from the never satiated need for more, 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 and from a life that misses the point. He's actually kind of right on that point, right? But I don't know that that's the kind of salvation Jesus came to provide. Um, That is a great way of saying that you like a version of Jesus' teachings, if read through a certain lens, but only very selectively, right? This is what is so common today, taking what Jesus says, taking what you like, reading it through your own lens and preferences, and making your own favorite, more digestible version of it. Now... I I have noticed that it doesn't seem to me that the secular Jesus follower movement ever really took off, never really got really big. Uh, I was looking for more people who were into this, and I couldn't find it. And I think actually something occurred to me. This is actually what sounds like passes for religion in most of the mainline Protestant denominations in the U.S. today, right? The secular Jesus follower movement is alive and well, it just has... It just calls itself the Presbyterian Church in the USA, right? It just calls itself the Methodist Church. It just calls itself the Anglican Church of North America, right? Um, so it's very much alive, and yet it goes by different names. Um, this is not a new problem, though, right? The the idea of taking what Jesus says and putting your own your own spin on it, or taking the things that Jesus says and saying I like them, I don't care for who. The Bible says he is. That's not a new problem, right? What, is, what happens in Jesus' day? Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God, but the people of Judea are so desperate to get out from under Rome's thumb that they hear what they want to hear when he proclaims a kingdom, right? They say, they say, he's preaching a kingdom. This man will be our king. This man will become our ruler who overthrows Rome. This man will be our great leader. They hear what they need to hear. They hear what they want to hear. Or, or think of when Jesus gets arrested and he's standing before the authorities. Do you remember what they charged him with? Uh, Jesus made this statement at one point when he was standing in the temple courts. He said, "Tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it again." So he's telling them that if they just, even if they destroy his body, he'll still be raised up. They never hear him for what he says. They hear Jesus calling for the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem because it is most convenient to them. They hear what's useful to them. They hear what they want to hear. They are selective. And in Scripture, you do find these different postures when it comes to listening to Jesus. There are two very different postures, right? On the one hand, there's the posture that says, Jesus, what have you said so that I can use what you said? Jesus, what have you said so that I can use what you said, right? That's the posture of the secular Jesus appreciators today, right? That is the posture of many who heard Jesus' ministry, even in the first century. It seems to be the posture of the people in Nazareth, right? The people of Nazareth, they like his teachings, Oh I love your teaching Jesus. What you're saying here is so wise. What you're saying here is so helpful to us. We're glad to take what you say. At least so far as it doesn't apply to who you are. But then you've got this other posture biblically. And it's just it's just the flip opposite and it's the posture of someone like Mary who who sits at Jesus's feet and, and listens. Right? She she didn't just hear him. She listened for what he was really saying. She wanted him to speak as he was. The the Jesus he was revealing to her and all who who would listen, that's the kind of listeners we're supposed to be. Who are you, Jesus, and what would you say? We must hear Jesus for who he was and what he was really saying, not for what we want him to say. We have to put away our preconceptions and our expectations that somehow Jesus today is going to speak and he's going to build me up and affirm me. Instead, we have to assume that when Jesus speaks, he's going to make us uncomfortable, right? Surely not everything is right with us. Surely not everything we think is correct. Surely not every opinion that we hold is right. Are we prepared to be corrected by God? And what what this means is is that if we listen to Jesus, we should expect that he's going to step on our toes. It means that we, we we shouldn't prejudge and decide whether we think Jesus is who he said he was based on some test of our own. This is a really common problem. This is a really common thing today for people to say, well, I don't like Christianity because it's antiquated, or I don't like I don't like Christianity because it's, it's retrograde. It's going to take us back to the, the caveman days, morally speaking, right? Uh, we need to be modern people, and Jesus doesn't fit with that. Well, that's a very backwards way of deciding what's right and what's true and what's good, right? A very strange thing to do to say, I don't know what's ultimately true, but I know what my morality is going to be at the outset, and I'm going to choose my religion, or I'm going to decide who is right, based on who lines up with me. It used to be that God spoke and we listened and we lived our lives around that question. But instead now we say, I am God. I will say what is true. And I'll choose a religious system based on my own intuitions, which is a very backwards way of doing these things, right? We think to ourselves, well, God agrees with me. If he agrees with my morality, if he agrees with my culture's morality, then I'm going to accept him. And yet God stands above us, and he stands above our culture, and he stands above our world. It means that when God speaks, he's not going to affirm us because he's better than us. He's not going to affirm us because he's wiser than us. He's not going to tell us that everything about us is good because we are messed up people. So if we, if we read Jesus, or we, we hear Jesus... And we only ever hear him telling us that we're already right. That is a surefire sign that we are not listening with a biblical posture. It is hard to read even one narrative in the Gospels. And we've been going through, you know, here we are, we're in in Matthew chapter 13. And over and over again, we have had week in and week out where Jesus corrected us. Where Jesus said, you guys are wrong. Here's the truth over here. And if all you ever do is hear Jesus affirm you, you need to understand this. Expect him to correct you. When Jesus speaks, what does he do? He he opens our hearts up and he exposes our souls. We're not always going to like what we see. We're not always going to like how we feel at the end of every sermon. If Jesus has spoken in a sermon, one surefire way of knowing that Jesus spoke to us is that we don't feel so great about ourselves. We should feel greater about Jesus, but we shouldn't feel greater about ourselves. And that's what Jesus does, right? In the narrative, he's always bringing people down so that their need of him goes up. That's what happens when we read scripture and when we hear Jesus speak for himself to us about who he is. His plan is not only to provide us with forgiveness, which it is, but it's also to shape us into new people who think like he thinks. And live the way that he lived. That's what it means to listen to Jesus and and to truly appreciate his teaching. So what I'm saying is, the thought that we could simply be people who appreciate his teaching and yet not caring about who he is, is so far off. It's so far off. Selective listening is not listening. Listening without exception to everything he has to say is a real appreciation and amazement at Jesus' teachings. The people of Nazareth say they're amazed by Jesus, but they're not really amazed by Jesus. They're only amazed by his teachings. And if they're only amazed by his teachings and not his person, then they actually aren't even amazed by his teachings. They aren't even listening to his teachings because he has things to say about who he is. In fact, that brings us right to the second point here, which... I want to spend more time on, actually. Because second this morning, we see a person that offends, right? The, the teaching amazes, the person offends. Um, you know, we just saw that we need to listen to all of Jesus' teachings, not just listen for, for what we like. Listening to all that he says means appreciating what he says about himself. He teaches a lot of things about himself. You, you see, this, this passage forces us to see that we can't separate his person from his teaching, right? Right? One of the things we can't do is say, well, Jesus will listen to your teachings, but those things that you say about who you are, well, they're just too much. We'll be selective. We'll only take seriously the things you say that we already like. The reason I call this point a person that offends is actually highly theological. I carefully chose that word person. I use this person very intentionally because... Sometimes when a person offends us, what we mean is that they said something that hurt our feelings. Uh, I, am, I am convinced every person in this room has had somebody hurt their feelings before. And you would probably say that person offended me. That's not exactly what I'm talking about here though, because they, they appreciated and were amazed by what he said. They actually liked what Jesus said. So whatever it is that offends them, It doesn't appear to be what he says or what he does. In other words, it's way more personal. Literally personal. It is who he is that is the problem for the people of Nazareth. When When we talk about Jesus as a person, remember what orthodox theology tells us. Orthodox Christology tells us. Christology is like theology, but for Christ. It is... It is the study of the person, person of Jesus. So, orthodox Christology, doctrine of Christ, who Jesus is. Now, it gets more complicated than this, but I'm going to keep it simple. Jesus is one person. Right? He's not two persons. There's not a, a divine person in, in there and then a human person out here. He is one person, one whole person, but he has two natures. That one person has two natures. He's got a divine nature and he has a human nature. He's not a divine person and a human person. He's one person with two distinct natures. And those, na- those natures are never mixed. Those natures are never confused. They don't trade places with each other. They are united in his one person. And we call that union of those two natures in one person The hypostatic union, which you can go home and tell your friends about. The hypostatic union. Write it down in your notes Um, if you don't already know it. Just start, you know, just say it. Just throw it out every now and then in a casual conversation. Uh, This is that's what I do, and it's why I have no friends. Um, So what what this means is this means that in the Gospels we learn that Jesus is. This is bad math, but it is, it's God's math. He is 100% God and 100% man, but he is only one person. So the person in scripture that you see walking and talking is man and God. Uh, the person revealed in the miracles is man and God. The person who is crucified is man and God. The person who was raised up on the third day is man and God. The person, even today, who sits at the Father's right hand is both man and God. Now, you ask a modern person what they think about Jesus, and they will probably say he was a great teacher. They agree with the last point, at least some ways. But ask them what they believe about Jesus and who he is, and what will they say? He was a man, but not God. And so in our own day, the problem is, with, we have a problem with the idea of the divinity of Jesus. In Jesus's day though, his human nature was a deep source of offense. And that's what we see here, right? We see here this morning, they are offended by his human nature, right? The, the passage says they took offense at him, the the Greek word that gets used here for offense is the word scandalon. You know, we use the word scandal, and in some ways it's connected with that, right? They were scandalized by the person of Jesus. They were scandalized, the text says, by him. It uses the word him to say the thing that offended them. It doesn't say they were scandalized by his teaching. It says it was him. It's really personal. In this case, the message is not the reason, according to the passage, that they reject Jesus. And we can be thankful the passage doesn't leave us in suspense. It doesn't leave us in confusion about why Jesus is rejected. The passage makes very plain the reason why Jesus was rejected. The people are are talking among themselves. And what is it that they say? Listen to this inner dialogue. We get this taste of the inner dialogue that happens among them. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not... This, the carpenter's son, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, are not all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all these things? So think of what is offending them that they are asking these questions, right? To the people of Nazareth, the scandal of Jesus was just how ordinary he is. He's so down to earth. They know where he came from, they know his family, they've watched him grow up. It's not his wisdom, or his words, or his deeds, it is the fact that he has those things at all. The teaching astonishes them, the plainness of Jesus, though, militates against what they see in their minds. How can he be an ordinary man but know what he knows and say what he says. They can't imagine how the divine teachings and the divine deeds and the human man can fit together. This is an incredibly sad response. Instead of receiving all of them, they prioritize the divine and claim and complain that he's so plain. You know, J.C. Ryle, he's got a great commentary on the Gospel of Matthew and. And I occasionally like to look over there and see, what does it J.C. Ryle have to say? And he points something out. He says, nobody on earth enjoyed the privilege that Nazareth enjoyed. The Son of God lived among them. We don't know exactly how long, but he was with them for many years, decades, longer than anyone else. They had this man among them who was sinless, perfect, upright, noble, full of integrity, the quintessential man, the greatest man. He lived among them all the while living under their watchful eyes and yet they took offense at him. He took offense at a perfect man. You see, the problem is they know him. His origin's not a mystery to them, or so they think. They think they know him, they think they have him figured out, and so here we see what they wanted was a Messiah with some mystique. You might even say they wanted a Messiah who would float down from heaven, not born of a woman, someone who would come like a, like a conquering angel. They had their own idea of what a Messiah would and should be like, and Jesus did not measure up to their expectations. And, and he still doesn't, right? Because the world claims to love and admire Jesus... But a lot like the people of Nazareth, the real Jesus is a disappointment to the world. He isn't what they think a Messiah would be. Um, One thing that's worth remembering is that every culture has their things about Jesus that they love and the things about Jesus that they're repelled by. Um, You know, in the Western world where we live, uh, I think that you can answer why this happens uh, by pointing something out. In the Western world where we live, you have this rich Christian heritage that's been rejected, but not all of it. So you have a lot of these background beliefs and assumptions and things that people in the West love. For example, we love the idea of mercy, at least so we think. Um, The idea of God's grace is very appealing to people in Western cultures. We love the idea of forgiveness, at least sometimes, right? Um... The culture we live in is is actually very merciless, but we like the idea that God is merciful. In the West, we like the idea that God is merciful, right? So so people really latch on to that. When they hear about God's mercy, they think, yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Um, But they think people should be strict and judgmental, right? People should be strict and judgmental. They latch on to things that allow them to be strict and judgmental. When someone gets hurt, they love to say, look, ah, instant karma. You got what was coming to you. I love when people get justice. There's a cry for justice. There's a cry for justice. Very little cry for mercy from human beings. So, in other words, in the West, here's what, here's what secular people love. They love the idea. They love, they, they find the idea of God's justice and wrath to be very offensive The idea that God is strict, the idea that God is holy, very, very offensive, but they want to be just and wrathful toward their neighbors and anyone who crosses the wrong lines. So here's what we've done. I I don't wonder if you've noticed this. I don't think that I'm overreaching here. The tables have turned now. We want people to be strict judges, right? No one gets away with anything. That person did something wrong. That person did something wrong. They offended the wrong person. They hurt the wrong person. There's no forgiveness for them. They should never have a job again, right? No, no mercy for people, not for me. So we want people to be strict judges and we want God to let sin and offenses just go. We think, we think, God's job is to forgive. People hold people accountable. God's job is to forgive. Have you noticed how corrupted our thinking has become? Where instead of thinking God is just, God is good, God's going to judge, we think I'm going to be good, I'm going to judge, God is going to forgive. Everything's turned, everything's flipped around, right? That's what's in the mind of so many Westerners today. We are holy, God is not. Right? You can't cross our lines. God's got to forgive. If he doesn't, he probably isn't even the real God. That's what we've come to. Now, you go to the East, you go to more honor-based societies, and it is quite the opposite, actually. Right? They can understand the justice and wrath of God. They're happy with the justice and wrath of God. They're at peace with it, at least. I don't know if they're happy with it. But they find the notion of forgiveness offensive. They, they find the idea of, of God forgiving sin to be something ab- abhorrent. They consider it unjust. They consider it morally offensive. So think about this. The Jesus of the Western world, uh, that, that the Western world loves, is far from being the Jesus of Scripture. What they, what they love about Jesus is a Jesus that they, they have made in their own minds. It's Jesus more like a mirror. Jesus, the idealized hippie that taught love and didn't speak, spat, spit venom, right? Here's the thing, though. When, wherever you stand, there is always something about Jesus that will offend you. Jesus is offensive and he is divisive for a variety of reasons, depending on the context. Go all the way back to Nazareth, though. Go back to this moment. What's their issue? Their issue is his humanity. He's too familiar. He's too close. Theologians call this imminence. Teaching all kinds of theology words this week. It's his imminence. It, it means he's close. He's he's imminent. The the people of Nazareth see him as familiar. He's imminent. They don't they don't like that he's so close. They want a savior who's far away, only transcendent, hard to reach, high and exalted. That's what they're looking for in a savior. And this is the thing that makes Christianity different from every other world religion. In no other world religion does the transcendent, high and lifted up, holy God actually come near. In every single religion that that believes in a transcendent God, that transcendent God stands far off at an incredible distance from humanity. Right? Um, Or the God they believe in is so imminent that he's sort of like us, just a little bigger, right? Like Thor or Zeus. In every single one of the religions that affirm God's transcendence, whether it's Judaism or Islam or maybe Buddhism, in all of those religions that affirm God's transcendence, God or the gods or the divine stand at a great distance and give humanity direction or advice from afar They do not come to us. They do not enter into our condition. They don't experience our suffering. There is no incarnation in any religion but the religion of the Bible. Only in Jesus does God come near and feel pain and experience our suffering and walk in our shoes. Only in Christianity does God have a mother called Mary. Or brothers called James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Only in Christianity does God have sisters in the person of Jesus. Why does this matter? To the author of Hebrews, this is monumental. Because because what the author of Hebrews says is that because he has experienced what we experience, he sympathizes with us and that is important. And because he sympathizes with us, we get to draw near and we get to draw near in a way that's bold. We get to come to God specifically because in the person of Jesus, he is one of us now. In Christ, the divine nature is united to a person who is also a man forever. To the people of Nazareth, this was, this was offensive. They were offended. They were scandalized. And yet that same scandal is actually their hope. That, that same scandal is the reason why there is a gospel to preach at all. Because if the Savior is not a man, he can never be our Savior. He, he would be an angel. He could die for angels perhaps. But he, he couldn't die for men. He had to be a man. Only a man could bear the sin of man. And only the infinite, an infinite person could bear the full weight of sin. And there is only one infinite person, and it's the person of God. If you're drawn to the words of Jesus, you're, in a, you're, a, you're not a secular Jesus admirer, but you're a Jesus admirer. Consider this. It cannot be just the words of Jesus that are compelling. Because do you know, do you know what? Jesus' teaching was very often about himself and who he was. Think of all the things in his teaching that Jesus says that the secular Jesus admirer has to ignore. Ignore. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't just say, like the Buddha, I have found the way to the truth and the life. He didn't just say, uh, like Muhammad, I'm going to say the words that are true. Instead, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You have to ignore that if you just want to embrace his teachings but not his person. Jesus said, "He who rejects me rejects him who sent me." He conditions your salvation on whether you reject him or not. Him, how self-centered do you have to be to say if you reject me, you're going to hell? And Jesus says it. Jesus says, "Come to me all you who are weary and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest." He doesn't say, "Go to God, All you who are weary and heavy laden, go over to God. God is going to help you. No, he's not Moses. He's not Muhammad. He is is Jesus. He says, come to me. He makes it personal and he says, come to me. He says, whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, "I'm I'm the light of the world. Again, just think of what he's saying here. If you appreciate this teaching, embrace the person of Jesus. He says, he says I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Think of, think of the chutzpah. <laughs> Jesus is Jewish. I think we could say chutzpah. Think of the chutzpah. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's so exclusive here, he shuts everybody else out. He's so exclusive. He's not pointing the way to God here. He's pointing the way to himself, which is the way to God. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. See, here's the point. If you love Jesus' teaching, love all of his teaching, and embrace his person. Show that you love his teaching by embracing Jesus. Because if you ignore that, if you're offended by the incarnation, then you don't appreciate his teaching. You aren't listening to his teaching. You aren't honoring Jesus. You are giving him insulting lip service. The fact that his life embodied the things that he taught, the fact that he lived what he taught and modeled it in action and showed us what a perfect life looks like lived and he did it without a hint of hypocrisy, the fact that he never hesitated to point to himself over and over and over again means that you must take all of Jesus or none of Jesus. If you take him seriously, then take all of him seriously. Let's pray. We pray, O God, that at once we would listen to your son, that we would hear his teachings. But because of that, make make us also embrace your son. That's what he called for. It's the only way for us to find life and hope. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.